Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Take a look at James 4. We are going to be in 6 through 10, but we're going to start in verse 1 to give ourselves some context here. Uh, We'll go from 1 to 10, we'll pray, and we'll get started. Let me read. James 4, 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, you do, not know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word. Give us humility to receive with meekness the implanted word of God, that we would trust you, the God of the gospel, who has in his great and glorious grace reached into our deadness and made us alive. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit working in us so that we might look at your text. We might see what's wrong with us. We might see you clearly and we might respond in faith, trusting you to do the work. God, I ask this morning that you would work in us. That you'd be active among our own hearts. That we would receive the word and we'd obey. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week, if you were here, um, and I know there's a couple that were out for a couple of different things that were going on throughout the body, which is good. Last week, I, we kind of came to James, and it was kind of a hellfire and brimstone sermon. Um, he called us out. There's some very hard things to hear. James calls us all adulteresses. And I did not back down uh, from making sure we all understood that. That's because I think it's important for us, because James that his audience is no different from what's going on here in our own hearts. But what I want to help us with is to remember that the story wasn't over there. We're not done with the book of James. He didn't leave us on this site of despair. Rather, what we see is that we realize that he's right. We are all truly adulteresses in God's sight. We actively make ourselves enemies of God whenever we love the things that the world loves. When we act like the world, we allow our selfish desires to take root and that concerns us more about what we want, our own advancement, our own glory, our own gain. And what happens is it puts us into the enemy of God category. No longer are we a friend of God. Now instead, we've actually put ourselves into the enemy of God category. 
We are wives that have willingly left our husbands for whoever else will satisfy our lusts. It's a gruesome and grim picture. It's harsh. And if, if you're anything like me, I'm extremely uncomfortable with this scenario. Um, I'm, 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 in fact, I'm disgusted with myself. I don't want this to be true of me. And I certainly don't want it to be true of you. We all know then that he's not finished, though, and the, the fun and the good and the, and the exciting part is that the, that the story isn't over, that there's now the rest six through ten for us to look at and understand and enjoy. We know that he's not finished with his exhortation, so we need the rest of this message. I know that I have evil desires warring inside of me, like this jealousy and this, this selfish ambition and pride, and this makes me an enemy of God, right? This makes me an adulteress, but I don't, I don't want to do that, so I want to know what I should do about this. I have a problem. I get it. I'm an adulteress. What do I do about it? Is there any way for me to be restored? Is there any way for me being this enemy of God that I've placed myself in this category to come back to be a friend of God? Is my relationship dashed and irreconcilable? Or is there a way for me to have restoration? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We have come to a glorious truth, brothers and sisters. This is a gem. This is the light that shines so bright in the darkness of all a tempest. When a sea is crashing around us in the storm waves and all the ugliness of sin, this shines forth and shows us the truth and shows us God's great grace. James doesn't leave us in the dark, that muck and mire all alone with no way of ever escaping the wrath of a perfect, holy, righteous God. A God who is jealous, who is a lover who will not tolerate infidelity. He doesn't leave us there. He gives more grace. Despite all our whorings, all of our adultery, God gives more grace. Despite all my choices to reject him, God gives more grace. Despite our wandering eyes of lust for the things that the world has that we want, despite that, he gives more grace. Despite all of our secret sins that gush out of a selfish heart that no one else may know about, that you and I know it, but we're desperately ashamed of inside, he gives more grace. Despite our wicked lifestyle, despite what might have happened in your wicked past life, despite addiction, despite rape, despite murder, he gives more grace. There is nothing that you and I can do that is too bad for God to forgive. There is no evil that is too powerful for God to overcome through his grace. Do you realize that? There is no one that can beat God, not even us in our sin. Do you realize he pours grace out and he can conquer even that? Our God is a God of great hope. Our God rescues the worst scumbags in the world. That's us. Our God gives life to dead people who don't deserve it and never will. Our God opens wide his arms to the prodigal son who has gone and taken his expensive inheritance and spent it on deplorable living. And he comes back to the father. And what does the father do? With open arms, he loves and brings his son back in. That's our God of grace. Our God assumes the debt that we so rightfully own. He comes to the adulterous wife and buys her back. That's the grace that we're talking about here. 
Our God is full of grace. And there is absolutely nothing that you and I could do to ever, ever earn it. You could be the most incredible saint to live. You could grow daily and love others and do good works and grow in completion. All things that we're seeing James to be saying that we should be doing. Loving Christ and knowing him and, and, and loving the world around us. And still, you would not be able to earn one inch of his grace for you. It's It's impossible. James now, though, because we can't do that, he delivers the good news to the adulteresses. Our situation is absolutely dire. Only someone infinitely capable could handle our mess. Only someone infinitely merciful and kind would choose to work this out. Only someone so glorious and mighty would be able to take this and reconcile the situation just for the sake of showing his greatness and glory to the world. He's all about his glory. Because of the immense grace that flows from the heart of God, we can be restored. He is more than sufficient. He is never beaten by our sin, by our ungrateful, wicked, scheming, selfish hearts. His resources are limitless. His generosity knows no boundaries. He gives more grace. When James tells us this glorious truth, we sigh this huge sigh of relief. But then the question is, what, what, what do you base this on? If this is true, what do you base this on? James says, I'll tell you. It's Proverbs 3.34. It's what we read this morning, actually. He gives us a kind of a paraphrase. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James, he's basing all of verse 6 through 10 on Proverbs 3.34. In fact, if you look back through all of chapter 3, which we read this morning, if you're listening carefully, you'll see that Proverbs 3 was highlighting many of the things that we've already seen in James chapter 3 and 4. I'm going to give you a few things. Verse 19, this is all about Proverbs 3. In verse 19, it shows that God's wisdom is the basis of reality. In verses 21 and 22, the writer of Proverbs shows that the following God's wisdom leads us to life and further grace. Verses 17 and 23 highlight wisdom that leads to peace talked a lot about peace these past ones, past weeks. Verse 27 and 28 show that a wise person does not withhold love and kindness from another needy person. It shows no partiality. Envy is rebuked in verse 31. An uncleanness or a lack of clean hands, see what he's doing there, is prohibited in verse 32 in Proverbs 3. In short, James is not preaching something new. He's preaching something quite old. He's preaching wisdom literature. He is using Proverbs 3 to preach to his congregations, applying with greater precision and tying all of this grace back to the hope that is found in the declaration that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, so having referenced Proverbs 3.34, we quickly realize that James has been doing this all along. It's not new. We realize there's two things that are part of this verse in 3.34. God has a real problem with the proud, and he gives grace to the humble people. Truth is, we could have gathered this from our context already in James. He has shown us quite convincingly in James 3 that the wise person can only show their works, remember this, by the meekness of wisdom. We talked about meekness, that humility of wisdom. In uh, 121 and in 313, we saw that word meekness. We talked about this in, at length. 
Here in chapter 4, verse 6, he uses the word humble. We also saw that back in 1.9, the same word. It's represented there by the word lowly. Now, meekness and lowly are obviously two different words, and there are two different words in the Greek as well. But when he talks about meekness, he is talking about the action of one who has humbled themselves before the cross. They understand their position before God, one who truly acts in a way that sees God and fears him and him alone. Now, the category of the people that understand what meekness is, they're called the lowly, or they're called here the humble. One is an action. One is actually the title for what these people are called. So James has been showing us the wise person who acts in humility and meekness. He promotes wisdom from above, and he promotes it in a way that it highlights reason and peaceableness and humility. He showed us this terrifying picture of demonic wisdom that centered us around jealousy and selfish ambition coming out of our hearts. Boiled down, he's talking about pride. Pride is what goes and really got us into this mess in the first place. Our selfish ambition, our jealousy, our passions that serve us are the ones that made us the enemy of God. And so this statement makes a lot of sense. God resists the proud. But we want to know about the other side of the coin. This is what we're so interested in. Now, James has been preaching humility, meekness, and peace, but now he makes it very, very clear. He says, okay, if you didn't get it before, here it is. God gives grace only to the humble. Like in case you don't understand, I'm trying to promote humility and meekness. God only gives grace to the humble. There is a line, and the only way to be on the receiving end of grace is to be on the humble side of that line. Just to note here, there is no earning it. I know I've said it already. We've already established that you could never earn it. You being humble doesn't earn you a thing. Okay, well, I guess I should probably just stand around and let God pour down his grace on me, and uh, we'll just see how it goes, and I don't have to really respond about anything. No, 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 no. God isn't in the, the business of making robots. He rather has called us to be active, thinking, responsive, obedient beings. We have been shown the truth about ourselves, right? And now we have the legitimate invitation to respond in humility and gratitude. The fact that you are hearing the truth today is grace to you. It's a wonderful thing. But just because you're within earshot of this message doesn't automatically qualify you as a humble person. And thus, it doesn't guarantee God's restoring grace to your life at all. And uh, for good reason, then, we say he gives grace to the humble. Now, this is our passage for today. This is where we stop explaining for a moment today. Normally, I walk through the entire passage of Scripture to help us draw conclusions at the end and really some application at the end so that we understand what we're supposed to do about this truth, right? Today, verse 6 is the whole sermon. Verses 7 through 10 are all application. I don't even have to do the application. James does it for us. Let me, this, is, this, this will help us. In chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to 4, 6, 24 verses, there are three imperative statements or commands. There are three imperatives. When we get to 7 through 10, 7, 8, 9, 10, four verses, there are 10 commands. There are 10 imperatives here. We should probably realize that there's something else going on, and this isn't just grace stuff. It's not just theory. It's something we should think and sit around about and like, ah, this, you know, alleged grace must be wonderful. 
No, this, this grace calls us to action. It requires it, and it does not work as we sit and consider these virtues. Only a humble person would receive grace from a generous father. But what does it look like to be humble? What does it look like for an adulteress to change her ways? What does it look like for us to properly repent and return to our given position? This is a serious call to humble repentance. Uh, he says here in verse 7 through 10, I'm going to read it. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This section is, is actually very neat and tidy. He hits three major areas to help us understand the total picture of what true repentance looks like. The first line I'm going to show you here, here's my slide for you. Be impressed, I know. This helps us. This is 7 through 10, all right? Notice the first line, submit yourselves therefore to God, and the last line, humble yourselves before the Lord, are very similar. There's a fancy name for this. It's called an inclusio. Or we would say probably an easier way to talk about this is there's two bookends. And it's helping us understand that the topic that he's talking about is encapsulated in all that he's saying here. And when he uses the word therefore, he's discussing everything that happens within these bookends. So we ought to pay attention. The whole topic that he's addressing now is submitting ourselves or humbling ourselves before God. And when he gets to these three different categories, you're going to see he's showing us how to repent, how to submit ourselves, how to humble ourselves before God. He's giving us the steps of humble repentance. So we need to see the whole section 7 through 10 as a response to verse 6, this idea that he gives more grace to the humble. He comes off verse 6, understanding that God will only give grace to the humble, and he says, therefore, submit yourselves to God. And since that is true, you ought to do these three things. Now, you're going to see how these line up in a moment. I'm going to make it a little bit simpler. Number one, we must align ourselves rightly underneath the correct authority. Look at what it says. Resist the devil, an authority. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The second thing, we must repent of our actions, external actions and our motivations, which are internal. Look at this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The third thing, we must understand the gravity of our sin and its consequences. Look what he says. This is the way we should act. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He is showing us what it means to understand the gravity of our sin. We're going to take a closer look at each one of these real quickly. The first one in verse 7 and 8, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, we need to align ourselves under the proper authority. The devil's not it. He may used to have been our father, but he is no longer. For those that have been poured grace upon us, believers, he is no longer our father. What should we do? Resist the devil. Oppose the devil. What does that look like? We've already seen demonic and hellish and devilish activity throughout the book of James. So I'm just going to mention the things that he says. A biting, unbridled, wicked tongue that's lit on fire by hell. Yeah, you should oppose that. That's something you should not do. The wisdom that harbors jealousy and selfish ambition that's not from above but rather is demonic, yeah, you should oppose that. 
You should resist that. That's not then something that we should do. That is a way in which we oppose the devil. Notice that he does not say, take up arms against the devil and go fight the devil. He doesn't say that. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's not what this passage is about. He is rather showing us something more important. Which team are you on? Are you on the worldly satanic team, whether you know it or not? Or is your allegiance with God and God alone? You must choose a side. We saw that back in the beginning about this man who's, whose heart doubted. If you ask, but your heart wavers or doubts, you're not going to get anything. Because the truth is you're unfaithful. Your allegiance is split between God and fill in the blank. Whether it's the devil, the world, yourself, whatever it is, your allegiance has been divided. Where is it then? He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In Hosea 12.6, I'm going to go back here because it's helpful. Hosea calls the wandering adulteress back to covenant faithfulness with God. And this is the word that happens. He says this, so you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. This is what James is talking about when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come back, return, draw near to a God who cares and wait for him, for he will draw near to you. This is a beautiful little saying. I, I, it's not only beautiful for understanding repentance, this is something that we should be cla you know, just clasping onto and using even in our own communion as we draw close to the heart of God. He draws close to us. God is our authority, but notice the terms that he used. They're more emotional and familial even rather than formal and you know, cold. God is our authority, but look what he says here. He talks about uh, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I can't help but think of the 27th Psalm when David longs to be close to the Lord. And he says this in verse 4. He kind of boils it down. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. He just wants to be close to him. He wants to be in God's presence. He wants to draw near to the tabernacle, to God's presence, so that he might know him and might see his beauty and be amazed that he could stand in the care and glory of God. And he realizes that that's what life is all about. And that's what his heart wants and desires. He just wants to be close to him. Later on, funny enough, in verse 7 of the same psalm, he says, be gracious to me and answer me. It kind of tells us, as we come into God's presence, we are coming to the fountain of grace, the only one who can truly give us grace. There is no other authority so wonderful and kind, so meek and gentle and full of precious grace for his children. So we must draw near to God. But the second thing he says, look at that in, verse, in the second half of verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James calls us to repent of our actions and of our motivations. These commands are full of Old Testament significance. James understands the proper approach that a person needs to take when he comes to God. And it's that that cleanses their hands and purifies their heart. Again, for the sake of time, we could go all over the Old Testament and see this, but I want, I'll, I'll boil it down. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who will stand in his holy place who will draw near to him, right? He who has clean hands 
and a pure heart. What does this mean? Do, do, I, do I wash my hands really well with Fell's naphtha soap? Or do I, you know, make sure I take nitroglycerin pills to clear out my, my heart and I expand it, I'm, I'm, it's functioning better? No, we're talking about actions, cleaning your hands of the actions that you do and the motivations that are going on inside of you. Purify your hearts. Basically, stop sinning with the actions that you do and stop the inward stuff as well. The only way that we could possibly do that, though, we realize is confessing and repenting and turning to him to actually change those things. He calls us sinners. That's a word for someone who outwardly is committing these sins. But then he calls some of us this other thing, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's where it's all hidden, right? Where no one else can see. Actually, we can see because eventually will play out. But he's talking about purifying your heart. He calls them double-minded, bring us right back to 1.8. At the beginning of his letter, he talks about this. He's referencing those that are unfaithful and that doubt God. Their allegiance is divided. He's saying this, confess your sins, all of it, both your sinful actions and your sinful motivations in your heart. Repent of these things. And as the prophet Hosea says in another spot, acknowledge your guilt and earnestly seek him. That's what he's talking about. God isn't looking for sacrifices or ceremonies or lofty language of feeling sorry that I got caught. That's not what he's looking for. God is looking for a broken and a contrite heart that understands its guilt before God and earnestly seeks God and seeks to stop doing the stuff that rails against God, these actions of your hands. The third thing then, let's look at this third section found in verse 9. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter or your silliness be turned to mourning and your earthly joy to gloom. At first glance, without any context, we're tempted to jump and be like, what is this about? This seems so opposite of what we've seen in so many other areas of scripture. I mean, there's so many things. The psalmist says, clap your hands and shout loud songs of joy. Isaiah says that God has increased our joy. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. In other words, be joyful. John desires that his saints' joy would be complete. Uh, in our very own Pastor James, if you remember from the beginning here, what did he say? Count it all joy. So what's he talking about? What's this mourning and this weeping and this wretchedness or being sorrowful? Now, some of you know what to do about this. We don't jump back to all these other people and then say, I don't know what in the world we're supposed to do with this. Where do we start? With James, with our context. What is James trying to do? As James leads us to understand true repentance, we realize that a proper response to seeing God for who he is, in all his glory, in all his beauty and his power, and then seeing ourselves for who we are, unfaithful, whoring, adulterous wives, now we start to see that there should be a proper response here. James draws on the prophets for this final command. He's going back to all major and minor prophets and using their language. He knows that impending judgment causes proper response. Mourning, weeping, wretchedness, languishing. I could, I could talk about Isaiah 15.2 or Jeremiah 4.13, Hosea 10.5, Joel 1.9-10, Micah 2.4. All of these show the proper reaction. Mourning, weeping, languishing, being wretched to judgment that comes for sin. They tell them to react this way. And so James uses the prophets, and I'm going to highlight one for you, Joel 2.12. This is what he says. 
Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. James isn't giving them a new type of attitude to embrace, and they're constantly to walk around this way. No, he's leading them to the proper response for their sin, because they know they will be judged someday. Make no mistake about it, God's wrath does not just go away. Uh, There must be an answer for sin against a perfect, holy, righteous, just God. That doesn't just go away. But James is showing us what a proper response looks like when a person realizes that they stand guilty before and and bear, they have nothing to, to, to shield them, what it looks like when they stand before God. Guys, there will be wretchedness, great sorrow. There will be weeping. There will be mourning. The question I have for you is when? It will either be at the judgment when you burn in hell forever, or it will be now because you realize that you offended a perfect, holy, righteous God who calls you by his grace to come to him. He says that he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You think these are hard words? They are. But he gives grace to those who would say, God, I have to come to you in meekness and humility and say, my hands are tied. I can't do anything about my sin. Only you can, and I need your grace. That's what we're talking about here. And so judgment will come. Will it happen in hell, or will it happen now as you realize your position before God and that we must respond in true repentance? James is asking us to consider the gravity of our wickedness before a holy and righteous God, responding appropriately to weep, mourn, sorrow over our terrible sin of infidelity. To have great sorrow over our selfishness and to cry, and to cry out to him. The great beauty in this verse, though, in verse 6, is that it comes in the midst of this darkness. And we realize how wonderful grace is because of what it can do. Where we have no ability to earn or do anything about our sin, His grace is greater. That's the beauty of this verse. It's showing us how in the world does this happen, God? How can we be restored? How can we have any of these things be forgiven? How, God? By grace and grace alone. His grace. But Chris, you just said that God, His wrath does not just go away. You said that, you know, there must be an answer for your and my sin. Yeah, that's right. Because if not, God would not be God. A perfect, holy, righteous, and just God cannot have sin just out there in the universe. There must be a punishment for sin. So if you and I have sinned, and James' readers have sinned, and all of Israel and all of Judah have sinned, now we're talking about millions and millions of people, and God still says he gives more grace, who answers for this sin? We know. It is Jesus who answers for all of those mountains of sin. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you understand the sweetness of Jesus? Where none of us could do it, he took it all on himself. That is why we worship and sing, because no one else could do it. The God-man was the only one that could take another sin. You and I couldn't even take our own without going to hell. And God... The God-man, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, gives himself 
so that we might have reconciliation with the Father and that our sins might be wiped clean. James says that he gives grace to the humble. All glory be to King Jesus. He's done this for us. Our response then? Our response is repentance, guys. Anything else puts you in the proud category. Puts you in the person who doesn't care about what's just been put out in front of them that's unbelievable and real. That God is doing this stuff. Our proper response, James has showed us, align ourselves rightly. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil. Repent of our actions. Cleanse your hands and, and purify your hearts. Get, your, get this right. Confess and repent. He says you must understand the gravity of your sin and its consequences. Weep. Mourn. Those are good things to remind us of our position before God over our own sin. God is not a God of once and done. He forgives, he restores, he pursues, and he offers grace to the humble. What a God he is. There is no one like him. Let's pray. Father, there is no one like you. Your grace is more than we can understand. It almost seems unjust because none of us deserve one ounce of your grace. None of us can earn your grace. We can't, we can't do anything about it. It's yours to give alone. And to turn to one of Hosea's judgment language on its head, we say that your grace pours out on us like a waterfall. We praise you. God, we confess our position, our actions, our motivations. We are adulteresses. And yet, you give more grace. We thank you for your heart of love, for your great action to reverse our selfish rebellion. We thank you for your plan and execution of that plan to send Jesus, to send Christ to be our substitute so that we might have salvation and experience that full and glorious grace that comes from your heart. Help us draw near to you, God. Please help us to repent of our actions, our motivations, and help us to understand the gravity of our sin. Help us to weep and mourn for our own rebellion. God, make us humble as we pursue true repentance. We know that it's only by your grace that we can obey these 10 imperatives, these 10 commands. We thank you for your grace. We give all honor and praise to you, the God of grace. It's in Jesus' most wonderful name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.